Let's pray. Father, we lift up our hearts to you now in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for making us a part of this church. Lord, we thank you for every soul that you brought into this church this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would demonstrate everything that you promised to us in your word. Lord, we ask that our hearts would be nourished this morning. Lord, we ask that saints all across the room would be edified through the preaching of your word today, Lord. We pray that you would feed your children as a good father in heaven. Lord, we pray that every soul would be made wise to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ today. Lord, we ask you to come. We ask you to dwell in our midst, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit. You tell us that your words are spirit and they are life. Lord, we pray that you would teach us your ways today. As your disciples, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, we're going to read God's Word together in Matthew chapter 7. Continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount. These are the words of Jesus that we're going to give our attention to this morning. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. Jesus says this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asking for bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? This is God's Word to Grace Community Church this morning. We want to give our minds to it. We want to understand it. We want to give our hearts to the words of Jesus this morning. We want to obey it. We want to have Uh, We want to receive what the Lord has for us in this passage. What is the plain sense of what we just read? What are we about to talk about for the next hour this morning? The plain sense of this passage is the Lord Jesus encourages His disciples to pray. The Lord Jesus encourages His disciples to pray. And encouragement is the right word to describe this text. There is a commandment in verse 7. Jesus commands His disciples to ask, to seek, and to knock. To not ask, seek, and knock is sin. There's a commandment here. But it's surrounded by so many promises, so much assurance, and so much encouragement that it's, also, it's almost hard to think of this passage as a commandment. And I'll give you some examples um, maybe from the parenting world to help you understand this, um, every, every parent, and, and, and maybe I should address the children, every, every child in the room knows what it's like to get that commandment from your parents. Clean your room. Uh, clean your bedroom up. You made a mess in here. You need to get this room clean. But I, wanna, I want you to think about another kind of commandment. Um, I, I'm just thinking about my little girl. If I, if I tell my little girl, Laurel... 
I want you to go to the freezer and I want you to get two uh, Reese's peanut butter cup, um, uh, one for you, one for daddy. Did I just give her a commandment? And the answer is yes, but if that's all we say, it's like something is missing. Because everything she's hearing, you mean I get a peanut butter cup? You mean if I go do what you say, I get, I get one for you, one for me? And there's something about the assurances and the promises and examples like this and commandments like this that they swallow up um, the hardness of the commandment. And that's what we're dealing with in this passage. Jesus does not just say, ask, seek, and knock. He says, ask, and you're going to receive. Seek, and you're going to find something. This is the difference in, you know, us playing this little game as a church, on meeting somewhere in some field on Saturday, and a general saying, uh, seek the treasure in this field. There might or might not be one here. Option number one. Option number two, there's a million dollars buried in this field. Go seek it. And oh, by the way, here's a treasure map to tell you where it is. Is that a commandment? Yeah, both of them are commandments. But the second one's different and we know it. And we know it. And a prayer is a duty, no doubt. But there's also a privilege to prayer. And one of the things that we're going to press into this morning is this idea that Jesus would have us to understand and to believe that prayer is not pointless. It's not a pointless, meaningless pursuit of nothing. Prayer is a means of receiving good gifts from our Father who is in heaven. And so these verses are a gift from the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples. Not merely ask, seek, and knock, but ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock. And it will be open to you this morning. And so the question that I want to put to you as we begin is, do you believe this stuff? Do you believe this about prayer? Do you believe that prayer is more than a duty? Not less than. Do you believe it's more than something that Christians should do? Do you believe that it's powerful? Do you believe that there's an efficacy in prayer? That prayer changes things? Do you believe that prayer is a means of grace, a means of receiving good gifts from the Father who is in heaven. And so that's where we're headed this morning. This passage is an encouragement from Jesus to his disciples that we should pray. Now, first thing I want to mention here, and I want to make this clear from the context that Jesus is teaching about Christian prayer. He's teaching us about Christian prayer and only Christian prayer. And we see that in verse, verse 11 and really from the context of the whole Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to those who know God as their father. And that's a gospel word. That's, that's a word that describes Christians and nobody else in the world. Who knows God as their father? Who has God as their father? And the answer is disciples of Jesus, Christians and nobody else. Else, Before you're a Christian, the devil's your father. After you're a Christian, God is your father. This is a gospel term. And Jesus is teaching about Christian prayer. It would be a great mistake, a great mistake for us to think that God hears everybody when they pray. He does not. The Bible is clear about this. Proverbs 15.8. Listen to it. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright 
is acceptable to him. Two people pray. God hates one and he loves the other. Sacrifice of the wicked, abomination to God. They bring their prayers, they cry out. God closes his ears and he rejects that prayer. But the prayer of the upright, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. It's acceptable to him. They bring that sacrifice of prayer and, and it's like sweet smelling aroma in the nostrils of God. It's acceptable to him. He receives that prayer. He doesn't receive all prayer. He only receives prayer from a certain kind of person. And I want you to think about how fitting that is. God is a king. Amen. God is the highest king that we can possibly imagine. The scripture calls him the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the king of all the kings of the earth. And even with earthly kings, we understand this. Nobody can just barge into the throne room of the king whenever they want. Um, it takes a certain kind of person. Uh, you can't just barge in unless you're a certain kind of person. If you're a certain kind of person, you can come as often as you like. You say, what do you mean? Tim Keller says this. The only person who dares to wake up the king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is his child. Who can, who can come as often as they want and whenever they like? It's one thing if you're an enemy of the king, you try to barge into the presence of God and you get banished, exiled, or even executed. But if you're a child of the king, you can come in in the middle of the night as often as you like, even for a simple drink of a glass of water. The child of the king could come, but the enemies of the king may not. And we understand this. Prior to conversion... We were those in Proverbs 15 that lifted up the prayers of the wicked that were an abomination to God. You need to know that. That's just the plain teaching of the Bible. Before Jesus, before you were covered in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, there was a time in your life where you lifted up your prayer to God and He shut His ears and he did not hear you. Why? Because you brought the sacrifice of the wicked. And it was an abomination to God. And maybe you can think about all those selfish prayers that you lifted up to God at one time in your life. God, get me out of this bond. God, please um, uh, uh, don't let you know, the, the, the police uh, find that thing in my trunk when they pull me over. God, please don't let her be pregnant. God, if you'll just get me out of this bind, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. Martin Luther prayed a prayer like this in the middle of a thunderstorm. He was caught in the middle of a thunderstorm as a lost man. Thought he was going to die. Lightning striking all around him and he prays, Queen, uh, Saint Anne, save me. The sacrifice of the wicked, chunking it up to God. And God closed his ears, just like he did to every one of us prior to conversion. And listen, if you're here today and you are not a real Christian, this is how God views your prayers. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to God. It is only the prayer of the upright that brings him to light. It is only the prayer of the upright that is acceptable to him. Ron mentioned this verse just, just a, a moment ago during the Lord's Prayer. That there's one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. Do you know why we pray in the name of Jesus? 
That's not just this little tagline that Christians say at the end of their prayers. What we mean when we say that is, Lord, we're coming before you now. And we're not coming in our own righteousness. You know why? Because we don't have any. We wrecked it all. We are rebels apart from grace. But we're coming this morning in the name of Jesus. We're coming on the basis of the mediator, the one mediator between God and man. We're coming on the basis of His righteousness, not our own. That's what in Jesus' name means. It's not something that Christians say at the end of their prayers or charismatic scream at the end of their prayers. It's getting up under our mediator. We're praying in Jesus' name. Prior to conversion, we brought the sacrifice of the wicked. After conversion, we bring the prayers of the upright that are pleasing to our Father in heaven. And I want you to understand this, brothers and sisters. Here's here's what I want you to see before we dig into this passage. At the cross of Jesus Christ, one of the gifts... That you received at the bloody cross of Jesus is a prayer life. You didn't have one before. You called out and God didn't hear you. But there's something that happened on the cross of Jesus. Hebrews 10 calls it a new and a living way was opened to us through his blood, through his body. You did not have access. You were barred away from God because of your sin. But Jesus came and he died. Hebrews 10 says it this way, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Don't you see? And then the, and then the writer of Hebrews says, so what do we do? We have this access. What, what do we do? Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near to God. One of the gifts that we've received in the gospel is a prayer life. And I want you to be thankful for that this morning. What does that mean? It means that we were enemies of the King. And because of grace, because of Jesus, we have been adopted into the royal family. And now we have a standing, perpetual invitation to come into the throne room of the everlasting King of glory. Listen, as often as you like. As often as you like, you have a standing invitation to come it is to christians that jesus says ask and seek and not and it is to christians that jesus promises and praise god to everyone everyone who's a christian jesus promises you will receive you will find and the door will be open to you so our lord is teaching in this passage on christian Prayer. Look at verse 7. Jesus uses three different words to describe prayer in verse 7. He says, ask and seek and knock. Now, we have two things going on here. One is repetition. And that's a device that's used all over the Word of God to draw our attention to certain things. All of God's Word is inspired. And so when the inspired word of God repeats something, our ears perk up like, man, the Lord really wants us to get this. So we have some repetition going on here. But also, um, there are three separate words. So it's not ask, ask, ask. Jesus says ask and seek and knock. Now, no doubt all three words describe prayer. 
But there's a little bit of uncertainty as to the exact relationship between these words, ask and seek and knock. Some say there's an increasing sense of intensity as we move from asking to seeking to knocking. So the idea here would be that we are called to pray with increasing fervency or intensity or all the more sincere uh, Ask, seek, and knock. So that's one idea. Another idea says the terms describe differing levels of proximity between a child and a father. And so this idea goes like this. If the father is in the room, ask him. If the father is in another room in the house, seek him out. If the father is behind a closed door, knock on that door. Find the father. And so if this is the idea... Jesus is encouraging his disciples not to allow this lack of awareness of the presence of God's nearness to keep us from praying. Seek him. And, and if he feels like he's behind a door, knock on the door. And so whatever the exact relationship between these three words, ask and seek and knock is, the main idea here is diligent, persevering prayer. Not just ask, ask, seek, knock. Be diligent in your prayers. Keep pursuing the thing that you seek. In Luke 18, Jesus teaches a parable. And he tells us in verse 1, Luke 18, 1. That he taught a parable that men ought always to pray and never lose heart. And so Jesus wants us, his disciples, to always pray and never lose heart in prayer. And the idea there is, is to be diligent in prayer. To keep coming. And he tells this parable in Luke 18, 1 through 11. He tells this parable about this persistent widow. That she just keeps coming to the judge. Over and over and over again. She keeps coming to the judge. She keeps making her request known to the judge. And the text says that the judge finally just relinquishes. And he says, lest she beat me down by her continual coming. He gives her uh, her request. And Jesus uses this, and it's really important in these parables. God is greater than that judge. And God doesn't you know, see us beating him down. He's not giving us things in prayer that he doesn't want to give us. No, the idea here is be like this woman. Be like this woman. Be diligent in prayer. It's not just throwing something out there, you know, every once in a while. It's ask and seek. And then when, once you're done doing that, knock and then do it again. Ask and seek and knock. And Jesus tells us that this persistent widow was heard because of her persistence. She just kept coming, kept coming. Those three words in verse 7, ask and seek and knock, they're in the present tense. They're imperatives in the present tense. They are commandments, but but they really have this idea. uh, Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. See, it's not something that you do and you're done. It's something that you're perpetually doing over and over again. And so Jesus is sketching this lifestyle of his disciples. He's calling us into a lifestyle of coming to God in prayer over and over and over again. Now I want you to take a step back for just a moment and think about why is the Christian life like this? 
Not just ask, seek, and knock, but keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking. And one of the answers to that question is the way that God has designed the Christian life is that we would have perpetual, continual needs that we bring to God and the remedy for those perpetual needs is found in His supply. And this is how He designed the Christian life. Not that we would just have needs one time when we were 20 and never needs again, but that we would have perpetual needs that we need to bring before the Father and on a perpetual basis, His supply remedies our need. Look back in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. The last thing Jesus says in Matthew 6 is He says, Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And so this idea there is, is uh, don't worry about tomorrow. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Bring the troubles of today before God in prayer. And what do I do tomorrow? Oh, okay, tomorrow I bring those troubles before God in prayer. There's a perpetual design to the Christian life. God doesn't just give us everything we need in answer to this one prayer. Maybe we prayed it at 30 and we don't have to pray again till we're 65. No, we must keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Why? Because yesterday's answer to prayer was for yesterday. We need daily grace. We need daily power from God. There's a story told by Corey Ten Boom. Um, she grew up, and one of the things that she said that she struggled with growing up, it's a wonderful burden to carry, by the way, for a young child, is she wondered if she would have the strength to die as a martyr for Christ if she was ever called to do so. So it's one of the things that she thought about as a young child. If God ever called me to be a martyr, would I deny Him? Would I have the strength to stand on that day? So she asked her daddy this question, and her dad gave her uh, a wise answer. And he said this. He said, uh, Corey, when I send you, um, you know, on the train from one city to the next, he said, do I give you the money for the train ride three weeks before uh, you get on the train? And she said, no, daddy. And she said, when do I give you the money? Uh, he said, when do I give you the money? And she said, right before we go to the ticket counter to board the train. And he used that as an analogy of this is how God supplies our need. This just-in-time mindset. It's not like we can take all the things we need for the next 40 years before God, get one mega dose of answer to prayer, and not have to come again. No, we perpetually come. And God supplies our needs as we need them. And so we must keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. One of the other things I want to point out here, why, why would Jesus call us into this perpetual, diligent pursuit of God in prayer? And I want us to learn this. I want us to be fully convinced of this, that prayer is necessary. There's a, there, there's a necessity in prayer. It's not, it's not just like it's commanded. And it'd be really good if you did this. There's a sense in which prayer is necessary. And I want, you to, I want you to think about this. I want you to be convinced of it. There are gifts and strengths and grace that you will not receive if you do not pray. 
That's what I mean by ne- it's a necessary means for receiving certain kinds of gifts. And therefore, we should ask and seek and knock. Not every gift works this way. Okay, I'll give you an example of this. Today on planet Earth, millions of people will receive gifts from God and never pray. There will be millions of people today on planet Earth that get physical food from God, whether they pray or not. And not only that, the sun's going to come up and shine on millions of people on planet Earth that never prayed a day in their life, God, let the sun come up tomorrow. And yet the sun's going to shine upon them. Our kind Heavenly Father is going to feed them with food that they need. And these are creation gifts, gifts of common grace, gifts that come to those who pray and to those who do not pray. But that's not everything that can be said. There's this other kind of gift. There's this other category, this other bucket of good things that the Father gives, and He does not give them to those who do not pray. And so the same example would be today on planet Earth, even though millions of people are going to have sunshine and food, whether they pray or not, not one person in this world today will receive the things of the kingdom apart from prayer. It's necessary for the gifts of the kingdom. It's necessary for this kind of grace, these kinds of gifts. A good place to see this is Romans 10. Romans 10, verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 teaches us that the Lord, our God, bestows His riches on everyone. It highlights God's generosity. His nature is to bestow His riches on everybody. And then the very next phrase is, who call on Him. That everything, that generosity in God's nature is qualified by this phrase. Who call on Him. Listen to Romans 10 verse 12. Bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So ask yourself two questions from Romans 10. Who gets the riches? Who gets God's riches? Who gets the riches of God bestowed on them? And the answer in Romans 10 is those who call, which is just another synonym for prayer in the New Testament. Who gets the riches of the kingdom? Those who pray, those who call. And then it even applies, the very next verse applies this to salvation itself. Who does the Lord save? Well, according to Romans 10, 13, He saves everyone who calls on His name. So one of the ways that saving faith is expressed is calling upon the name of the Lord. And so do you see, you don't get these things apart from calling on the name of God, apart from prayer. You don't get the riches. You might get sunshine and bread in your belly. You don't get the riches of the kingdom. You don't get salvation apart from prayer. It's necessary. It is a necessary means of grace. Necessary in the sense that you're forfeiting things in your life when you do not pray. Necessary. James 4, uh, chapter 2 says it this way. You do not have because you do not ask. It's not the only answer to the question of why you don't have. 
But one of the biblical answers to the question is you don't have these things because you're not asking for them. There are certain, I want you to feel that this morning. There are certain things that you need that are good for you. That your father desires to give to you that you will not have if you do not ask. And not just ask once, but asking, seeking, knocking, diligently pursuing God in prayer. Jesus is teaching here that if you want to receive, you have to keep on asking. I'll mention this quickly. Wrong views of the sovereignty of God tend to make us too passive. And one of the places besides evangelism that you see this showing up is passive in prayer. You ever met a a hyper-Calvinist? You ever heard of that term, hyper-Calvinism? These distorted views of the sovereignty of God that uh, leave us in this this passive place where we can't can't square it with commandments like this in Scripture. This whatever-is-is-what-will-be attitude that, you know, distorted views of the sovereignty of God that our only role is to passively accept what our, what our Lord brings about. Whatever lot He assigns, we passively accept it. The problem is, in this text and texts like it, God is calling you to do more than passively accepting things. He's calling you to actively seek out good gifts from your Father that you don't yet have, but God will give you if you pray. It's one of the ways to smoke out hyper-Calvinism. Jesus wants us to strive with God in prayer like Jacob wrestled with the angel in the book of Genesis. To lay hold of God in prayer. To to come and to keep coming. Man, I want the Lord to stir us up to this. To pray with persistence. Diligently bringing our request before God. In verses 7 and 8, Not only do we have the commandment repeated three times, the promise or the assurance or the encouragement, it's actually given to us six times in two verses. Three times in verse seven, you're going to receive, you're going to find, it's going to be open to you. And just in case you didn't hear, let's do it again in verse eight. You're going to receive, you're going to find, and it's going to be open to you. Six encouragements in two verses. This is high octane uh, assurance. A con- assurance in concentrated form. In other words, Jesus really, really wants you to get this. That if you seek, you're going to find. If you ask, you're going to receive. And just in case, you know, He knows how it works. I'm telling you, Jesus knows how it works. That you sit back in the back of church and you think, yeah, I believe that, that. You know, some Christians ask and they receive. Some Christians seek and they find. And that was true for George Mueller and Charles Spurgeon and maybe a few pastors I know. And so he says this in verse 8. No, this works with everyone. Look at verse 8. Everyone who asks receives. Isn't that encouraging? Everybody. Not just super Christians, but everybody in the kingdom. This is how the kingdom works. If you're in the kingdom, you ask, you receive. If you're in the kingdom, you seek and you find. If you're a kingdom citizen, you knock and the door is open to you. It's a universal law in the kingdom of God. 
And Jesus would have us to believe it. It's like the, the, the repetition of the assurances is meant to pound against our unbelief that would keep us from praying. Meant to pound against it. Ask yourself um, this question. What could possibly motivate you to pray more than an absolute confidence that you're going to be heard by the God of heaven and earth? What could motivate you more than that? That it's not going to be a waste of time. It's not going to be this pointless thing that you're going to have the ear of God. And this is what Jesus does in verse 7 and 8. The imperative, the command to ask and seek and knock is grounded in the assurance of receiving and finding and having the door open to us. Now, We'll come back to that as we finish. It is important to qualify what Jesus is not saying with these promises of assurance. They're not meant to be taken out of context. We are to pray for what is good, not for what is evil. So this is not just a blanket, blank check that you ask for whatever you want and God will do it for you. Okay? That this is some magic formula. Um, it's not that. This is not a magic formula that you repeat in the presence of God and say, Lord, you said whatever right here. I'm asking. Uh, pay me. It's time. It's time to answer. It's not a magic formula to demand anything you want from God. As though he were bound to you, bound to give what you ask. That would flip things around and make you God and God your errand boy servant. No way is Jesus teaching that in this passage because that's blasphemy. It's not a, a blank check to ask for whatever you want. These things that we ask for in verses 7 and 8 are qualified by the context. What do we ask for? Well, the, the, the Bible actually teaches us. And if we get this right, what are, what are the things that we could ask for? Then the promise of assurance of receiving them follows. If you ask for things that are evil, God's not giving you things that are evil. You have no assurance of receiving things that are evil. Look in verse 11. Jesus tells us in verse 11 that the Father gives good things to those who seek Him. What do you ask for? That right there. You ask for good things. You ask for the things that God's nature and God's promises. He's promised to give these things to you. Good things. So ask for the good things. Not the evil things. Not for the fulfillment of selfish or lustful desires. But for good things. And listen, not just for good for a little while. Like, man, it'd be really good for me. If I didn't have this circumstance for the next, you know, three days of my life. That's not the grid here. The grid is your what is ultimately good for you is what you ask for. And what is ultimately good for you, the good things, is what the Father is delighted to give you. What's really good for you. What's eternally good for you. This is what we seek from God in prayer. What are these good things? Well, they're all kind of stuff. But there's two things specifically 
that this context points us to. And one is found in Matthew 6.33. And so listen, in, in, verse, in verse 7, Jesus commands us to seek. But that's not the first time in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus taught us to seek. Back in chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus told us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what you're supposed to be seeking. So what are the good things that you're asking for? What are the good things that you're seeking in prayer? Answer from the context, the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. That's what you bring before God. That's what you come on with, with that request on your lips over and over and over again. The things of the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God. And Ron pointed this out just a couple of weeks ago. First, not just chronologically, not like, you know, I wake up at five and I seek the kingdom of God first. So I pray about the things of the kingdom at 515. And then for the rest of my day, I pray about money and stock markets and material things. It's not first chronologically. It's first in priority. It's the thing that we're obsessed with. The thing that's on our lips over and over. That's what we should ask for in prayer. And that's the promise. That's what we can be fully assured that we will receive. We can be confident that God will answer our request as we seek the kingdom. Listen to how Jesus says it in Luke 12, verse 32. Jesus assures us, he says this, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In the same way in Matthew 7, we are told that it is the Father's pleasure to give us what is good. In Luke 12, we're told it's the Father's pleasure to give us the kingdom. When we seek first the kingdom of God, we are not trying to talk a begrudging God into giving us gifts that He doesn't want to give us. It is His pleasure. It is the good pleasure of our Father in heaven to to give us the kingdom, to bestow the kingdom upon us. I want you to think about one more thing from the context. In verse 12, verse 12 starts with the word so, so the very next passage. And there's a summary statement in Matthew 7, 12 that summarizes the whole ethical portion of the Sermon on the Mount, which is happens to be about right in the middle of chapter 5 where Jesus starts unpacking the righteousness that is demanded in the kingdom of God. Well, you go through the rest of chapter 5, all of chapter 6, all through our passage this morning, you get to 712 and there's this big summary statement where he summarizes the whole thing. And right before that summary statement, Jesus tells us to ask and seek and knock. Why would that commandment be here? Why would, it, why would it be the last thing that Jesus says in this ethical section? Think about what's going on here. The Lord Jesus has laid out the righteous standard of the kingdom of God. And if we're seeing this rightly, like Matthew 5.3, like those who are poor in spirit, we got nothing in the tank morally. We are bankrupt in spirit before God. That means it's not like you're driving home and the gas light comes on and says, put some gas in the tank. You're going to run out of gas. It's not like that. The needle is bottomed out. There's nothing in the tank. We have no righteousness apart from Jesus Christ. We have nothing good in us 
apart from grace. And so that's who we are apart from Jesus. And then boom, the righteous standards of the kingdom are laid out over and over and over and over again. Matthew 5 and Matthew 6 and Matthew 7. How are we supposed to respond to that? How are we supposed to respond? How would Jesus have us to respond to that? He sends us for power to our God. That's, that's the placement in the Sermon on the Mount. Ask and seek and not for what? For good things. What are good things? The Holy Spirit. Power to obey God. We need power from another world. We need the gracious power of our Father in heaven. We need the power of the kingdom of God to obey the standards of the kingdom of God. And so one of the things, the good things that we ask for in prayer and keep coming and keep asking is the Holy Spirit of God. And in the parallel passage in Luke's gospel, that's exactly what he tells us to ask for. So there's in the parallel passage, the wording is exactly the same as Matthew 7 through 11, except Good things in Luke's gospel is changed to the Holy Spirit. I'll read it to you. Luke 11 verse 13 says this. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What are we supposed to be seeking? What are we supposed to be asking for? We're supposed to be seeking and asking for power and grace to obey these righteous standards that our Lord Jesus has laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus encourages us in this passage, do it. Go to God. Ask Him for it. He'll give it to you. He'll give it to you. Jesus, this is one of the ways that He's so different than the Pharisees. In, the, in, Luke, in Luke 23, we're told that the Pharisees just load down their disciples with standards and duties. And, and the Bible says that they won't lift a finger to help them. Jesus, Jesus is not like that. Jesus lays out the righteous standards of the kingdom. And then he says, hey, by the way, go get power. And everyone who seeks power to obey in the kingdom of God, every single one of you will receive no one will be denied. Last thing here. The last section deals with our unbelief towards the true nature of the Father. And I would submit to you that these last three verses, 9, 10, and 11, get to the heart of this passage. And I would even say it in this way, what, is, what this passage is most fundamentally about, what's most fundamentally at stake is not your prayer life, but what kind of father you think God to be. And I would say it that way for this reason, if you know God rightly, your prayer life is soon to follow. Your prayer life reflects what kind of father you think God to be. And Jesus knows this. So Jesus in verses 9, 10, and 11, He tells you who your Father is. He tells you what kind of God Father is. Verse, verse 9 through 11, the goodness of the Father is illustrated for us. And Jesus does this by drawing a comparison between an earthly Father and our Father in heaven. And He asks two questions. 
One in verse 9, one in verse 10, and they both get to the same idea. First question is this. Jesus looks at a group of men and He says, Which one of you, if a son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Second question. Which one of you, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? So I want you to understand the question. Bread and fish. This is a typical Galilean meal. So what Jesus has in mind is a hungry child. Asking for bread, asking for fish. And who does that hungry child go to? He goes to his dad. Perfectly natural, perfectly normal. Understand the illustration. In this culture, flat pieces of bread and round stones look like each other. And we know that. Remember Jesus' temptation. Back in Matthew 4, the devil said, turn these stones into bread. Okay? So understand the illustration. For a child to receive a stone, a hungry child asking for bread to receive a stone is like trickery. It's like this cruel you know, uh, tr- trick. It looks like bread, but it actually does him no good. It's like this you know, um, uh, practical joke taken to this cruel degree that you would give a hungry child what looks like bread but can't help him. At all, Jesus says, which one of you would do that? Nobody raises their hand. Second example, a child asks for fish and instead the father gives them a snake. And the idea here is a poisonous snake, something that is harmful to you. Okay, so, so this is not like uh, some, some of the boys in, in the church, you know, catching snakes, handling snakes. That's all fine and good. Till, till, till you say, hand me the rattlesnake. Okay? It's a whole nother world. The idea here is a hungry child seeks a meal from the father, and the father hand, hands them something that is harmful, something that could kill them. Jesus says, raise your hand if you would do that. Again, nobody raises their hand. And so Jesus makes an argument here from lesser to greater. I do want to say this. The, you know, this is a rhetorical question that Jesus assumes that nobody in his audience would be that cruel to their child, or at least they wouldn't raise their hand and admit they're being that cruel to their child. The assumed answer to these questions is nobody would do this, but I do want to mention it's not like it works in every single situation. Okay? There is a such thing as a deadbeat dad, that's a real category. There is a such thing as a father who would abuse their son, whether verbally or physically abuse their son. There are fathers in this world who are filled with such cruelty and hatred that they would do what Jesus asked if any any of these fathers would do. And that's not in Jesus' view here. Okay, He's speaking generally and typically. It is true that some children knock on the door of their father and their father says, get away from me. Get out of here. I don't want you around me. That's a real category. If that's your experience of an earthly father, this is not what Jesus has in mind. His argument from lesser to greater is those who would not intentionally do harm to their children. But because of common grace, Jesus 
can make this argument. His statement is generally and typically true. And it's especially true in this ancient Near Eastern culture that Jesus is speaking to. And so the lesser part of the argument is this, for the most part, generally, typically, fathers, who by the way, Jesus calls evil in this text, generally and typically, fathers give good gifts to their children. That's the first part of the argument. Sidebar for just a second. Jesus just called us evil in this passage. Jesus just said, you who are evil. He's talking to disciples. This is a reminder reminder to us of our nature apart from grace. Who are we? Ephesians 2. By nature we are children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. This is who we are apart from the grace of God. We are evil. It is only by grace that we are counted righteous through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Some people say that depravity or original sin or universal guilt, that these are only categories that just the Apostle Paul made up. You know, just Paul just made this stuff up. And we need to get back to red letter Christianity. Well, here's the problem. You know, red letters. My, I mean, if your Bible even has red letters, Jesus just called us evil. And so instead of Paul making it up, the reality is Paul got his doctrine of, de, 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 of from, uh, from who? He got his doctrine of depravity from Jesus. Jesus calls us evil apart from the grace of God. First part of the argument, fathers typically generally give good gifts to their children, even though they're evil, even though they're evil. And then we come to the main point of this passage in verse 11. Remember, the argument is lesser to greater. Jesus says this, if that is true, he says, how much more will your father in heaven Give good things to those who ask Him. So understand the comparison here. Understand the illustration. This first thing is true. How much more is this second thing true? And you should circle these three words in your Bible. How much more? Because this is where the you know, human language runs into problems describing what God is like. How much more? That's like the best we can do when in reality He's infinitely greater. You can't even compare Him. How much more? It's not like this. It's not like um, those, those fathers that give good gifts to their children are like a five on a generosity scale and God's like a ten. That's not what those three words mean. As though all that Jesus was saying is... Uh, uh, quantitatively, God is the same. He's the same as us, generous, just more. He's a, you're a five, He's a ten. That's not what that word means. Those three words. Those three words mean that God is in a category all by Himself. He is qualitatively different from us. How much more with a Father in Heaven? He cannot be compared. The best human father that you know is a faint, glimmering shadow of the love of God the Father. The best one. The very best daddy you know. And praise God, we have good daddies in this church. 
The very best one is just a faint shadow of the love of our Father. And just to press the point of this text, even going further than that, the best human father you know, listen, is evil compared to God. He alone is good. The best daddy you know that would never do harm to their children. They're evil when we compare them to God. In a category all by Himself. And Jesus wants us to know this about our God. He wants us to know this about our Father in Heaven. You could even go further than that and you could take all the love of all the fathers that ever lived. You could stack them on the scales, compare it to the love of God the Father in Heaven and still incomparably greater. How much more will our Father in Heaven give good things To those who ask. You have to know the difference between God and us. God is not like us. Even the best among us. God is not like us. Those three words, how much more? That ought to be one of the most precious truths in the universe to you. That your God loves you. That your Father in heaven is generous. That He loves to give good things. To those who ask Him. One of the things I've I've joked around with Ryan about and Greg now for years is, man, I want to do a sermon series on the attributes of God and I want to name it, Who's Your Daddy? And and every every time I say it, it's like those half dollar signs of, yeah, that's why I got plurality of leadership, bro. and, 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 and of course, I'm just kidding about the title, but the idea is real. Christians need to know who your God is. You need to know what your father is like. In this passage, Jesus is saying he gives he gives what is good to those who ask him. We have a generous and a loving father. Don't let unbelief and the fiery darts of the devil distort his character. We have a Father who loves us. He is not begrudging. He is not cruel. He gives good gifts. If we ask for a fish, He will not give us a snake. Not ever. He will will never give us what is evil. He will never give us what ultimately is harmful to us. This is our God. Earthly fathers sometimes make mistakes. And we give what we think is good to our children. And sometimes it can turn out to, man, I thought that was good, but hindsight looking back, that was not good for him. That was not good for him. We make mistakes like that. God never does. He gives what is good and he he never makes mistakes. And one of the things that we can trust our father for is that he corrects our prayers. We have all asked for what we thought was good. But in hindsight, God didn't give it to us. And in hindsight, it would have been harmful to us. Every one of us have done this. In the language of this passage, you could say this. We have all asked for stones that we thought were bread. We have all asked for snakes that we thought were fish. And what did our loving Heavenly Father do? He said no. And He gave us what is good. What is truly good. We're not always aware of what is ultimately good for us, but He always knows. 
And it's a comfort to us as His children, as we come to Him in prayer, that He knows how to give what is good far better than we know how to ask. He's more committed to this than we are. And this passage is encouraging us to pray. May we leave this place today with a robust confidence in our Father's Character. I pray that you would receive this teaching today as encouragement from Jesus Christ. Ask, seek, knock. The Lord's going to answer. The Father delights to give good gifts to His children. At conversion, He adopted us into His family. He has a plan and a purpose for our life. He watches over us and cares for us like a shepherd cares for us. For sheep. He always desires our good, our ultimate good, and He desires that you come to Him in prayer as often as you like. And His delight is to give good things to those who ask Him. Let's pray. Lord, we come today and we, we ask You, Lord, that You would cause these words to bear fruit in our lives. God, I pray that You would pour out a spirit of intercession in our church, Lord. God, I pray that You would fill us with more delight and desire to bring our lives, to pour out our hearts before You in prayer than we've ever known. Lord, I pray that You would help us, encourage us out of unbelief towards Your character. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.